Today from the Global Lane, worldwide persecution against Christians rising. One U.S. trade partner uses high-tech software to destroy the church. American cultural decline. Are Christians to blame? Australian bushfires rage out of control. Climate change or deja vu? And transsexuals in sports. Feelings, fairness, physiology, and DNA. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. One in eight Christians worldwide experience persecution. That's about 260 million people. And persecution globally is growing. In its 2020 World Watch List report, Open Doors says persecution increased 6% last year. Nearly 3,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2019. Well, joining us with more from Washington, D.C., is the president of Open Doors USA, David Curry. David, I've got to ask you about China because it jumped on the Open Doors list from 43 last year to 23 this year. That's a huge jump, but I've, I've got to admit that some of us who follow this regularly expected China to be even higher on your list. Tell us about that and what is happening in China. Well, what's so scary about the persecution of Christians in China is that China is building what I think is a blueprint, a roadmap of persecution for other regimes around the world. And they're doing it with surveillance, with a social score that, that measures Christian behavior, attending church, taking your kids to Sunday school as a negative thing. And they're taking that social score and melding it with surveillance, not just on the street to protect the citizens, but an invasive surveillance inside the churches. And they're shutting down house churches that won't comply and others as well, arresting pastors that won't play along with their surveillance system. I think this could be the roadmap for persecution for other regimes because Iran and others want to buy this technology and China seems willing to sell it. Now, President Trump just signed the phase one trade deal with China. He says he hopes to visit there soon. What should President Trump say to President Xi about the way that China treats Christians and other faith groups? And should there be linkage in trade talks? Well, I certainly believe this needs to be a point of discussion. Progress on the economic front, these kinds of trade deals can be a very positive thing, obviously. But phase two and other phases of any trade deal need to understand that you cannot deal with a country like China unless you have some assurance that human rights and the rule of law are significant to them in the same way that they're significant to us. Doing business with people, uh, you know, doing business with partner or friend countries, we can't allow them to violate human rights, this first right of freedom of conscience, to decide for yourself what you believe and to practice your faith in, in your own way. Tell us more then, David, about the 2020 watch list. Which countries are you most concerned about? Well, obviously, North Korea is a country of great concern. Number one for 18 years in a row, total control of the government. We need to have some more transparency from them in these nuclear talks about how their human rights system tends to, uh, you know, is, is going to improve. Some uh, maybe availability of the Red Cross and others in the State Department to visit the labor camps. There are 60 thousand Christians in labor camps for owning a Bible, and many of them die there. We need to get some insight on that before we, you know, move on to, to, to other discussions. That's a point of interest. Iran, of course, everybody's thinking about it. 
There's a story of Christians in Iran. It's number nine on this year's World Watch List. So many Christians, a strong house church movement, but they're under tremendous pressure. Iran and the regime there is trying to crush Christianity, and we need to let our voice be heard that we know our family members there, brothers and sisters in Christ, are, are suffering, and we care, and, and we're praying for them. And at number two and three and four, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, all Muslim countries where it is life-threatening, like North Korea, to be a Christian. Tell us about those countries. Well, you can't look at the world watch list without understanding the trend of Islamic extremism. You have failed states, essentially Somalia and Libya, where these tribal factions and extremist groups are able to do what they want to do. If you're in Somalia and you're you know, suspected of being a Christian, let alone actually being a Christian, you will be executed uh, in short order. You're not given a trial, n nothing like that. So these are very dangerous places. And we need to understand and try to address with m other Muslim groups how we're going to deal with this spread of Islamic extremism. It's not slowing down. It's a major driver of persecution of Christians. And until that's addressed from the moderate Muslim community and others in, in free governments, it's going to continue to build. Nigeria? Pakistan. Those are also Muslim countries. Yeah. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Well, Nigeria is one to watch because it mimics ISIS in many ways. You have Boko Haram, which is a partner with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they don't recognize borders. They want to set up a caliphate in Cameroon, Chad, Niger, and now in Burkina Faso. So you're, they, they're looking to spread out from northern Nigeria. I think this is going to be one of those areas that could very easily tip into chaos because you have weak governments that are not protecting these soft targets of churches. So many people killed in Burkina Faso, Nigeria, these other areas by these extremist groups. We've got to pay attention to it. And how about Pakistan? Uh, we didn't see any churches actually bombed, I guess, in 2019, uh, but still persecution's an issue there, is it not? Oh, it, it really is. They let Asya Bibi go this year. That gives me some glimmer of hope that some people there in the country understand the very negative force of blasphemy laws, which is a vigilante justice. Anybody can accuse a Christian of blasphemy and they could get the death sentence. So those things are going to have to be addressed within Pakistan. But there is a, a, a long-standing church that, that loves Jesus and uh, their dear people, and I pray for their safety regularly. And finally, David, what are you wanting our viewers to do to make a difference around the world? Well, I think more and more Christians are beginning to understand that this is not episodic. It's not just what you see occasionally on the headline news that people are being persecuted for their faith on a daily basis. We have to rally to the, the, the support of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's biblical, and we need people to pray. Okay, David Curry of Open Doors USA a very significant report on Christian persecution, and it's used by believers and others worldwide uh, to understand what's happening, to encourage people to pray. Thank you, David, for those insights. Thank you. The nation's primary season is underway with the Iowa caucus now less than three weeks away. Polls show self-proclaimed socialist Bernie Sanders is at the top or near the top in Iowa and New Hampshire. Some political observers say the 2020 election may offer a clear choice between socialism and capitalism. Well, here to provide us with some insights is journalist Stephen Strang. He's founder and CEO of Charisma Media. His new book is God, Trump, and the 2020 election. Stephen, I read your book. 
It's good to have you here to provide some additional insights on this. So what are the stakes in this election? Well, I believe everything is at stake, and it's not, it's not just 2020. I mean, these trends have been going on for a long time, uh, certainly back to the 60s and maybe even back to the end of World War II. But, uh, but Donald Trump is a disruptor, and he's disrupted everything, and, and the left has just gone crazy. But it's not, I don't see this in just political terms. I really see it in spiritual terms because um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And, you know, our whole culture has been moving to the left, becoming more and more liberal, even in the church. Uh, th things in the ch that when I was a kid, Christians would never consider doing, they uh, are okay now. And you can debate that. Some of it was probably legalism. But uh, one of the reasons I believe that we're in the mess we're in is because the church has not been the church. We haven't stood for righteousness. Um, when we are attacked in all kinds of ways, uh, like, for example, when the, the Supreme Court ruled, when they found a constitutional right, or I guess they based it on separation of church and state, um, it could have been solved if... Christians and other Americans had risen up and said, you know what, we're going to pass a constitutional amendment to make this law. We're, we're seeing these attacks against our president. We've seen the whole Russia investigation with Mueller. We, we've seen the whole Ukraine thing and now the impeachment of the president. And you believe there's really a spiritual element. You had touched on that a little bit. Uh, already, but I know in the book you talked, uh, you referred to uh, Dr. Michael Brown, and we've interviewed him on this program before. He talks about witchcraft, witches praying against the president en masse. We had 12,000 on one day praying against the president. Is that part of it as well? I believe it is. Now, witchcraft is a little bit under the radar screen yeah. most of the time. They're becoming more and more bold. But that is just one aspect. It's probably the, the most extreme aspect of spiritual warfare. But just... Uh, uh, animosity between Americans that don't raise to the level of witchcraft is spiritual warfare as well. And I believe that the attacks against the president, uh, going all the way back to really before he was inaugurated, where people said they were going to impeach him. And they're just trying to find a loophole in the Constitution that if we can get enough votes in the House of Representatives, we can impeach him. Well, for what? The Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors. Now they're saying that if he survives this, and I believe he will, that they're going to impeach him later. And that's I, right again. That's right. And, you know, well, more thank, reason for us to pray then, Stephen, this spiritual warfare that we see in our country. and To pray and also be involved. We need to speak up. Christians tend to be very, very quiet. And if we're attacked, we get intimidated and kind of back off. But we can write our Congress people and say, enough of this nonsense. Uh, we can speak up. We can... Uh, but we're not speaking up uh, not only in the public square, but in our churches. You have a chapter here about how the church has been compromised. Absolutely, in a lot of different levels. For one thing, it's been compromised theologically, where a lot of churches don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit or the authority of the Word of God. But also, they become more and more timid. Our Christianity becomes feel-good Christianity, where you go to a service and you spend time in prayer and worship and you hear a nice little sermon, you go home, you feel better about yourself. But really, what has changed? And I believe that things are getting so bad that people are finally waking up. Uh, pastors are waking up. But, you know, because of the Johnson Amendment, 
uh, which is a, a yeah. provision of the IRS code that they can take away your nonprofit status. That needs to be uh, repealed. And Donald Trump is the first one, first politician I can remember even talking about it, let alone trying to do something. Now, ultimately, Congress is going to have to change that law. And it comes from Lyndon Baines Johnson had some people in Texas who formed a nonprofit and raised money and gave a tax receipt and opposed him in the election. And he won and he was going to punish them. And he did. But it ended up with sort of unintended consequences. And I think, the, though, that a lot of pastors, frankly, are timid and they hide behind it. It makes it it makes it convenient. They can say, well, I don't want to disobey the law. And of course, none of us want to disobey the law. But it's a law that should have never been there. And also it's open to interpretation on, on what it means. Some fear the consequences of man more than God, I guess, at times. You're absolutely right. The book is God, Trump, and the 2020 election. Uh, I recommend it for people to read and for Christians to go out and vote uh, this coming election year. A very important election. You say it may be the most important of our uh, lifetimes, at least. That's right, because yes. of all that's at stake. Okay, very good. Thank you, Stephen. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. By now, you've probably heard about the wildfires that have devastated parts of eastern Australia. They've killed at least 26 people and millions of animals. More than 2,000 homes and businesses have been destroyed. Recently, at the Golden Globe Awards in Hollywood, actress Jennifer Aniston wrote a letter from award winner Russell Crowe, who was absent. Crowe was in Australia helping out his mates, and he blamed it all on climate change. Make no mistake, the tragedy unfolding in Australia is climate change-based. Joining us to discuss Mr. Crowe's climate claims is climate expert Gregory Wrightstone. Mr. Wrightstone is author of the book Inconvenient Facts, the science Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Greg, it's good to see you again. So set us straight here. What do you think about Russell Crowe and others blaming the Australia wildfires on climate change? Well, he's sort of right in that it's, he's right that it's man-made, but it's a man-made devastation unrelated to climate change. Uh, we really have to look very, very similar to what we see in California. It's, uh, we can look and blame these devastating wildfires uh, on forest mismanagement and brush fire or bush management uh, practices that we've gotten away from. Uh, and I, I think it would be helpful to take a look first at a little bit of the history of Australia, uh, just quickly so, so your viewers will understand. When Australia was first inhabited by the first Aborigines, they brought with them fire, and they used it early and often, and they completely transformed the continent. They used fire for any different uh, means for hunting food. They would set fires and then catch the reptiles and marsupials as they ran away from it. And they used it as a weapon against other tribes. But basically, the entire continent uh, had been turned into a grassland that was burned, again, often several times a year. And when Captain Abel Tasman, Tasmania is named after him, uh, arrived in 1642, his logbook and his journal, he captured that Everywhere he landed, he found evidence of either fires or recent fires. He could see smoke uh, always on the distance in 1642. Uh, and then nearly a century later, when J Captain James Cook arrived, uh, he did his tour of Australia, landing at various spots, and he found the same thing. Australia has, has a long history of fire. Bush and uh, the forest, the National Forest, now are large uh, forests of eucalyptus trees. 
And the reason the, the koala bears like eucalyptus is for the same reason they're so dangerous. They're very oily, uh, very, very flammable. Just this week, there was a report on the California fires, and the, the fire expert that, was, uh, that led the report stated that he believed that fires in California are very similar uh, to Australia. He thought that fire in the Sierra Nevadas and in California was just as important to the health of the forest. Now, get this. Just as important fire was to the health of the forest as is precipitation. That's a pretty bold statement. But I, I think it would go for Australia as well. Uh, and this this isn't me saying it. This is the head of that that study on California fire. So so still uh, tragic, still tragic, Greg. But uh, uh, nonetheless, but uh, not really climate change. Uh, uh, look at history. Is uh, that's what you're saying? So just before last Christmas, of course, Time Magazine. You mentioned her. Uh, made young Greta Thunberg Person of the Year for her climate change advocacy around the world. And she seemed quite emotional. You remember when she angrily criticized government leaders of the U.N. saying, how dare you for stealing my dreams and my childhood with empty words. And I'm sure you'd say Greta needs to read your book. And this young mind needs some educating. What doesn't she understand, Greg? Oh, boy. It's not just, it's not what she understands it's what she understands to be true is just not so. And there's a lot of the inconvenient facts that I capture in my book, Inconvenient Facts, uh, that she just she, she doesn't know. But I think the big problem is that she what she thinks she knows just isn't supported by factual evidence. Um, I mean, if we, if we, we can just I can, we, there's a whole laundry list of things that we go through. And she's launched these Friday strikes, climate strikes. I've been to a couple. I call them Fridays for fascists. Uh, I go there and I, I talk to these people. And I get the kids. I was pretty stupid when I was 16, too. I mean, I was really dumb. Uh, we're not, we don't have to go any further into that. But it's the adults that I talk to when I go to these Friday for fascist strike meetings. Um, most of them here in Pittsburgh. I've been to one down in D.C. Uh, but it's how, again, it's the adults that should know better. And I go to these climate strikes, uh, these, these protests. The thing that jumps out to me is, Gary, is how much of these, probably 50% of the signs aren't related necessarily to climate change, but rather promoting uh, socialism and communism. Uh, they're anti-capitalist by nature. Uh, the, the sign that I see most often when I go to these is uh, not climate change, system change. They want to bring down our system of government uh, and capitalism and replace it with their vision of, of utopia, uh, which probably means that your viewers aren't given much, much discretion. Uh, they're going to be told what car to drive, how to heat their homes, if they heat their homes, how warm or cold they must be in the summer or winter. Uh, these are, they, they want control of our lives. That's, that's what they're after. And this is a it's something we, we need to fight again. Okay, conserving versus deep ecology. Gregory Wrightstone, author of the book Inconvenient Facts, the science Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Thank you, Greg, for sharing those insights and setting us straight today. Thank you, Gary. Gender confusion pushed by the American left is creating unfairness in high school sports. In many competitions, biological males competing as females have dominated female sports. Good Morning America has highlighted several examples, including Connecticut high school track and field champion Andrea Yearwood.
Now, five states are considering legislation that would require biological males to compete against males, females against females. Matt Sharp of the Alliance Defending Freedom says it's all about fairness. Everyone knows that there are biological differences between males and females. And the whole reason we have laws like Title IX that protect opportunities for females was in response to these realities. And so I think we can all come together and say every student should have the opportunity to compete. But what we want them to compete on is not an unfair playing field, but a fair one. Some schools say the rights of transgenders to compete need to be protected. And yes, they do against athletes of their birth sex. Just because a transgender athlete feels uncomfortable competing against males doesn't mean he should compete against girls. It's not a matter of him feeling like a girl or even resembling one. Folks, it's a matter of genes and DNA. The transgender athlete may surgically remove male body parts and receive hormone injections to make him resemble a female, but his DNA is male. That gives him a physical and athletic advantage over females. Here are some facts about male versus female physiology. Now, this is science, not emotion here. The lung capacity of males is greater than females. Men have bigger brains than women. Now, we're only talking physiology here, gals. That doesn't mean we always use the brains that God gave us. Also, male upper and lower body strength is greater than females. Men are considerably stronger. And men have greater bone and muscle mass than women. Now, I could go on, but you get the point. No transgender surgery would change that. It's the DNA of males, the way God made the sexes different. Yes, let's not mistreat transgenders, but being nice to them doesn't mean we lose all common sense. Let's not trample on the rights of female athletes by giving transgenders a biological advantage. That's not fair to the females. Remember, our Creator made us in His image, male and female He made us. And Psalm 139, 13-14 says, He formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, we are wonderfully made by God's own hand, not our own. Biological males competing in female sports is not only unfair, but it's rejecting the work of the Creator, the one who made us male and female, unique human beings created to do good works. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.